This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, columnist Marina Hyde takes on the trolls of former political prisoner Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe and her so-called lack of gratitude. Writer Ed Cumming charts the ubiquity of Aesop's expensive little brown bottles of hand soap. Art writer Kadish Morris meets singer-songwriter, actor and producer FKA Twigs to discuss finding a new wavelength. And finally, journalist Stuart McGurk explores the new age world of manifesting. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we jump in, a quick warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. First up, having spent a lot of time at her press conference on Monday, thanking a large number of people who played a part in her eventual release, Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe happened to mention it took just the five successive foreign secretaries before something repeatedly promised to her actually happened. Her freedom from an Iranian prison. If only she had been docile, says Marina Hyde. She might have silenced her critics. Instead, she had a few questions. Luckily, the ingratitude police are on the case. This piece is read by Erin Shanaher. To Britain, where a woman who hasn't said a word for six years is apparently talking too much. Are you a man who's got a massive view about how a hostage should behave after a lengthy incarceration? Are you 90% throbbing forehead vein? Do you like your prison victim's pliant and super obsequious about having spent pretty much their young daughter's entire life as the cell guest of a theocracy. If so, we really, really want to hear from you. And I have a feeling we're going to. Can you possibly stow your two-litre caramel latte in the cup holder, handbrake turn onto the hard shoulder, punch in the phone in digits, and then give a masterclass in how unthreatened you are by the decadent Western spectacle of a woman speaking her mind. Encouragingly, because some British people like to put their mouth where their arse is, the above call to arms has been answered. By mid-morning on Tuesday, hashtag SendHerBack was trending on Twitter, further bolstered by those so horrified by the hashtag, they felt the need to repeat it. Down the phone lines and across the internets, many people are simply not happy with Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe's failure to react to her belated release like she's just won Miss World in 1957. You know the playbook? Deeply indebted tears at a flow volume that won't disrupt the mascara. Silence broken only by a pledge to work with children and animals. British children and British animals, just to be on the safe side. And yet, having spent a lot of time at her press conference on Monday, thanking a large number of individuals and organisations who played a part in her eventual release, Nazanin did mention the fact it took just the five successive foreign secretaries before something repeatedly promised to her actually happened. 
And it is this that seems to have caused a huge number of four-wheel drive prams to be emptied of all toys. Of course, you get a few wishy-washy ignoramuses disagreeing. If trying our best took six years, reasoned Jeremy Hunt, then we must be honest and say the problem should have been solved earlier. Sorry, Jeremy, but what on earth do you know about the situation? Wait, hang on. My producer's telling me Jeremy was literally one of those five foreign secretaries. OK, well, thanks for dialing in. But we'll have to cut you off now because I've got a 56-year-old man from Aldershot on the line who once told a BT customer service representative that she was as bad as Hitler and is now marvelling at the absolute cheek of Nazanin. I've got a guy who thinks masks were fascism strongly suspecting the Ayatollah had a point about this bird. I'm kidding, of course. But one does sometimes wonder if this whole generational cohort is becoming coddled. Nobody tells them to shut up and buck up. Nobody tells them to get some perspective and ring off. It's just possible we're raising a generation of entitled middle-aged men who think their every needy opinion has to be listened to. As far as genuine real-life examples go, I saw one individual who characterised Nazanin's wry difference of opinion with Richard Ratcliffe about the merits of the Foreign Office response as disrespecting her husband. Over on Nick Ferrari's show on LBC, a chap called Jason seemed outraged that Nazanin didn't come across as a sort of victim, adding, it would have been nice for her to say thank you. She did. At length. But perhaps it was too much for Jason to actually watch the thing. Ferrari appeared to partially agree, remarking, there might have been a degree more gratitude. Aha. There it is. Gratitude. I'm never sure whether it means being thankful or not being uppity. However, I can tell you it heralds some important Venn diagram news. The people sticking it to Nazanin for not being grateful enough are the same people who boo footballers for taking the knee. Yep. Just like the old knee-taking, it all comes down to gratitude the UK's sole remaining virtue after the others were sold off to oligarchs and Middle East sovereign wealth funds. And you know, I hugely admire people who have whittled down their entire emotional range to a single extremely compact sentiment, the idea that people should be grateful. Other people, obviously, not them. After all, how can they be grateful when there are ungrateful people out there? Stands to reason. They're so ungrateful about a world that contains ingratitude that they have to ring a phone in and lose their shit about it. Look what you made them do. Indeed, this whole line of criticism reminds me of a particular genre of Daily Mail column, of which I'm a keen student. Consider Stephen Glover asking rhetorically, couldn't F. Hirsch summon a smidgen of gratitude? Or Amanda Platel deploring Storms's mention of Grenfell at the Brits one year, asking, can't you show a scintilla of gratitude, Stormzy? The argument is always that this country has given people like Stormzy a good life and they should shut up complaining. And yet, why should it be only... How to put this delicately? People like Stormzy who should show gratitude... Why can't it be, say, newspaper columnists? To pluck an example from the air, Amanda Platel, not born here, incidentally, spends the rest of her columns complaining strongly and occasionally erroneously and distastefully about people and events in the UK. Meanwhile, Stormzy, born here, incidentally, doesn't seem to get to have similarly strong and occasionally erroneous and distasteful views about people and events in the UK. Why? If nothing else, a newspaper columnist telling people to be grateful is like a fisherman telling people to be vegetarian. We're literally in the complaining game, Amanda. Stop cocking up the business model. I can't help feeling something similarly ironicidal is happening with Nazanin, where a woman is already having her freedom of speech policed by people who think they're absolute defenders of it. 
I mean, not to state the fist gnawingly obvious here, but isn't the whole point about liberating someone from the clutches of some backward theocracy that you don't immediately then go and tell her to know her place? Isn't the point that you tell her to say whatever the hell she likes, how she likes, and don't wet your big boy pants about it? You don't have to agree with her, but you don't get to tell her what to say, much less to say nothing at all. And if the home county's hardliners don't like it, maybe they could hashtag go and live in Iran. That was Nazanin is Grateful. But is she grateful enough? I don't know, but the trolls will tell us. By Marina Hyde. Read by Erin Shanahan. Next, from posh restaurants to aspirational homes, Aesop hand wash is everywhere. But how exactly does a cult product go mainstream? And how long before the bubble bursts? Here, Ed Cumming charts the rise of the posh hand wash and discovers some competitors bubbling to the surface. Read by Savannah Stain. I first noticed Aesop's little amber bottles popping up in smart restaurants and hotel rooms a few years ago. They were glass ambassadors from a faraway country of refined, futuristic beauty products. Then I spotted them on the Modern House website and occasionally on Howden's furniture catalogue, positioned next to Bricktail showers and Belfast sinks. By spring 2020, the bottles were everywhere. The little vials of its post-poo drops designed to mask bad odours in the loo shorthand for a certain kind of domestic sophistication. The Aesop bathroom was in a house with Veda trainers in the hallway, Torres crisps in the cupboard, and an Alison Roman pasta dish warming in an hour place pan on the stove. Like diptyque candles, Aesop products were a cultural signifier far beyond their practical applications. I have a friend who admitted to placing a bottle in the bathroom when they were trying to sell their flat. Then came coronavirus. Whatever else might be said of the pandemic, it was boom time for handwashing, with COVID creating excellent trading conditions for Aesop, and specifically its handwashes. The NHS spent millions on videos about the correct handwashing technique, with Boris Johnson advising we do it for the length of time it takes to sing happy birthday twice. Aesop was perfectly positioned to take advantage of the new lather lust. With the world focused on hygiene, the brand became ubiquitous. Handwashing became a life or death issue, the first part of the hands, face, space liturgy. So paying £29 for a 500ml bottle of soap, more per milliliter than Moet and Chandon, began to seem, if not reasonable exactly, something of a treat, particularly as many of life's pleasures had been removed. Inevitably, the brand launched a slightly pricier hand sanitizer, described by GQ as a flex for an anxious time, but it was sales of its established hand wash that rocketed. Aesop declined to provide figures, but John Lewis listed it as one of its best sellers of the pandemic. I love Aesop, says fashion and beauty writer Lisa Niven Phillips. You see it in certain places or homes and you think, that's something you want to be part of. Every brand dreams of combining small-scale allure with mass market profits, and Aesop, which has been quietly on the march since it was founded in Melbourne in 1987, is a case in point. But how exactly does a cult product go mainstream? Even if you couldn't identify the resurrection aromatique hand wash, you may recognise its scent, mandarin, rosemary and cedar, which come with a potent sense association. If your hands smell like Aesop, you're probably having a fancy time. The black and white lettering is also identifiable a mile off, the minimalist wording, the French translations, the fonts, Helvetica, Optima Medium, the Macron diacritic, a straight bar, over the E on the label, so you know to say Aesop. This attention to detail has been present since the start. The company was founded by a hairdresser, Dennis Pafitis, who started by blending essential oils into his hair products. The firm was called Amis, Greek for us, before being renamed Aesop in 1989. On day one, Pafitas hired an assistant, Suzanne Santos, who proved vital to the business's development. He started with just four products. The signature aromatique handwash launched in 2006, but has expanded to nearly 100. Since 2016, it has been owned by a Brazilian company, Natura & Co, 
and has annual revenue of more than £250 million. Pafitis is now an advisor, but Santos remains chief operating officer. Aesop's internal processes are law. Former fashion and shopping website Racked reported in 2017 that office staff had to use black Bic pens and aren't allowed to eat lunch at their desks. Everything from toilet paper to colours on graphs on slideshows is prescribed. Aesop declined to comment. We labour over seemingly inane decisions, Bafitas once told the Sydney Morning Herald. We work to make things appear effortless and as though they just happen, but actually, there's a great deal of energy involved. For Rory Sutherland, vice chairman of branding agency Ogilvy, Pafitas's heritage and Aesop's branding are important components of the company's success. I first encountered it in Greece and assumed it was Greek, he says. The packaging is very clever. It's a category you might call chemlux, in this it carries hints of both the five-star hotel and the apothecary. At £29, the handwash is expensive enough that you can buy it as a gift without feeling stingy, while staying in the range of what a decent bottle of wine or bouquet of flowers might cost. A friend was given a bottle as a pre-baby gift to take to the maternity ward and maintains it transformed her birth experience. Since 2004, when its first store opened in Melbourne, Aesop has used physical premises to create an experience that feels more like a spa than a shop. The stores are vital to the brand. Sleek temples in which the products are displayed like museum exhibits. Film director Luca Guadinio even helped design the minimalist Rome branch. Today, there are more than 240 branches in 25 countries, plus nearly 100 department store counters. Staff are reportedly not allowed to talk to customers about the weather. It's too banal. Not everyone is convinced, though. I wish bars and restaurants with good wine lists wouldn't use their products, says wine writer Nina Kaplan. Pick up a glass after washing your hands and you'll be tasting Chateau Aesop, whatever you ordered. Restaurants, of course, played an important role in popularising the hand wash. There are not many other places where people repeatedly wash their hands in a refined atmosphere. But for some restaurateurs, the packaging alone is enough to convey the desired effect. The refill economy which encourages people to top up their bottles, thus saving on packaging waste, has exploded after the past few years, with companies like Phil and Way alongside Aesop leading the eco-charge. The owner of a high-end bistro in the south of England went one step further. I was given it as a Christmas present and it ran out just as I was opening, she says, and I'm absolutely not going to spend £29 on a bottle of soap. Instead, she refilled the bottle with a cheaper alternative, before qualifying her mischief by writing this is not on the bottle above the word Aesop. My favourite bit is when people come out of the loo smelling their hands, not realising that the bottle has supermarket hand soap in it. The brand has also inspired other businesses. The labels of Danish brand Meraki look remarkably similar. In October, discount retailer Aldi launched its own version, the Lecura Wellness Aromatic Hand Wash, in a dark amber bottle with minimalist lettering, which retails at an affordable £2.49. In one characteristically punchy interview in 2015, Bafitas said Aesop's attention to detail was why the Philistine plagiarists who attempt to copy what we do will always fail. Always. Yet there are signs that some of the imitators might be closing in. Wary of Aesop's ubiquity, some hospitality businesses are turning to alternatives. We love Aesop. But we reviewed our costs during the pandemic and discovered loved, says James Heart of Hearts, the London restaurant group that includes Barafina, Quo Vardis and El Pasta. We did a group test and all thought gloved cedarwood smell is complementary to food. A good thing if you're going back to finish your meal. It comes in refillable glass bottles and it's very good value. Aesop still ships everything from its factory in Melbourne, which can be expensive and carbon costly. It has acknowledged these concerns and announced plans to reduce its footprint, and historically has been ahead of the game when it comes to things like minimising packaging. But as a profitable, successful firm, it's the obvious target for ambitious upstarts. Charlie Vickery is Managing Director of Haeckel's, a natural skincare company focused on seasonality and locality, established 10 years ago in Margate, Kent. The company's first product, and still its second bestseller, is a bar soap made with seaweed picked 100 metres from its lab. A bar feels good in the hands, he says, and doesn't involve the high-carbon transportation costs. 
Aesop was the pioneer of soap as a design-led product, so we owe a bit of our heritage to it, says Vickery. But I think it's easy for a lot of natural skincare brands to fall and trail in their wake. As lockdown regulations ease, Aesop bestrides the nation's sinks like a saponaceous colossus. It even broke America, cropping up in Carrie and Big's kitchen on the recent Sex and the City reboot. Aesop may have won the pandemic, but how long will it last? Call it Sud's Law. That was Lovely Bubbly, How a £29 Soap Changed the Way We Wash Our Hands, by Ed Cumming, read by Savannah Stain. We'll be back after this short break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, after a hellish couple of years, pop visionary FKA Twigs is back. Here, she sits down with Kadish Morris to talk about beating illness, escaping abuse, and the joy of connecting with her Caribbean roots. Read by Savannah Stain. This article describes moments of abuse that some listeners might find upsetting. FK Twigs isn't special, she says. She just rehearses a lot. I don't think I was born with anything more than the rest of the world, says the 34-year-old singer-songwriter. It might be hard to believe that anybody could do the splits down a pole or wield a sword, wushu style, the way Twigs has done without possessing some divine powers but it's all in the training. She can afford private lessons now, but when she started out as a fresh-faced backup dancer, YouTube tutorials and group dance classes helped her perfect her craft. I practice and I practice and I practice. That's who I am. Twigs has had a spellbinding career, exploding onto the pop scene a decade ago with operatic vocal arrangements, conceptual videos and futuristic instrumentals. In 2014, The New Yorker magazine said that she dresses like a high-fashion model from antiquity, but her songs promise the very contemporary pleasures of texture and emotional immediacy. Since then, she's released several acclaimed albums and is considered a trailblazer in pop, R&B and Afrofuturism. But her journey hasn't been all art and reverence. She was racially abused by Twilight fans while she was dating Robert Pattinson. She suffered with fibroids, and in December 2020 she filed a lawsuit against her ex-partner Shia LaBeouf, accusing the actor of physical, emotional and mental abuse that left her with PTSD. Still, Twigs has always come out fighting. Her latest project, a mixtape of party songs titled Capri Songs, was created with good vibes in mind and made during lockdown, an experience that was both challenging and liberating. It made me think in different ways, which made me make different music, which made me grow as an artist. When Twigs first emerged, her celestial vocals and conceptual productions saw her compared to Tricky, Kate Bush and Bjork, 
Despite a rich discography, a Grammy nomination and a British Fashion Award under her belt, Twig still seems to be grafting just as much as someone who is starting out. She won Enemy's Godlike Genius Award for 2022 and put on a theatrical performance at the ceremony earlier this month, wearing a huge silvery alien butterfly outfit with wings. A few hours before we're scheduled to meet, I'm told that I should prepare to travel in a car with her as she might need to go to the studio mid-conversation. Does she rest? No, she says bluntly. If the colour of my skin means I have to try harder, I'll do it, says Twigs. When we do sit down together, her gaze is sturdy, an intense, curious type of eye contact. Her body language bounces between still and animated. When talking passionately, she gesticulates with her hands and shifts her body up and down. But otherwise, she's calm and focused. It's a cold Monday afternoon and we're sitting in her PR's office in Mayfair. The room is professional and characterless, but this bland setting only makes Twig seem more majestic. Her hair is twisted into bright blonde locks and a big ring light illuminates her face with a soft glow as she sips a cup of coffee. She tells me that she embraces her furious schedule. I've always put a lot of pressure on myself, she says. I don't know if that will change as I get older or if I start a family, but at the moment... My destiny and my purpose is to rise to the challenge. She has talked in the past about the pressure to be ten times better than her white peers in order to stand out, that she could never get away with just standing up and singing in front of a microphone and strumming a couple of cute chords on a guitar. I have to be pole dancing, upside down, swinging a sword, directing, producing. Even fashion-wise, she rarely slacks. It's hard to find a picture of twigs that doesn't look as if she's just walked off the runway. She's dressed more casually for our chat, wearing a light-coloured sweater and some jewellery, but she still looks offbeat. It can be extremely tough for black women to thrive in the music industry. Darker-skinned black women face much more bias than those of lighter shades. But Twigs also feels she has to be above average and epitomise excellence. If the colour of my skin means that I have to try harder, you know what? I don't care. I'll do it. Every single time. I'll do it till I'm blue in the face. Because that's my purpose. It's not always fair, but guess what? Life's not fair, she asserts, without stopping for air. Twiggs was born Talia Deborah Barnett in 1988 in Cheltenham to an English-Spanish mother and a Jamaican father. She was also raised by a jazz fanatic Bayesian stepfather. What's it like in Leeds? She asks me with wide eyes, assuming she's asking what it's like to be black in Leeds. I tell her that surprisingly, I had a more black experience up north than I ever did living in London. I definitely understand what you're saying, she says. As a teenager, I started getting the bus to Gloucester to be around people who were from the same culture as me. I've never experienced such an intense West Indian experience as I did in Gloucester. Twiggs refers to herself as a bursary kid, having got a scholarship to go to a Catholic private school. I was incredibly well educated, she says. I went to a beautiful school with beautiful grounds. Those years were formative for her. It was when she harnessed her artistic abilities and took opera and ballet lessons. She doesn't keep in touch with her school friends, though. There's no beef with anyone, she says. But at the same time, with love, I need to leave that in the past. Making fun of my hair or telling me that it's greasy or that it smells funny because I put a product in it. That's racist. And that was even some of my best friends. It made it really hard for me. I didn't feel like I could be myself. The irony of Twigs feeling like her hair or skin colour wasn't normal is that her look is now very much in vogue. When she started out, she wore long box braids, elaborately patterned cornrows and gelled down curls, hairstyles seen on the streets of Brixton or the Bronx, but not often on the red carpet. Rap superstar Nicki Minaj called her an icon in a recent interview. I remember before the baby hair trend became the trend. FKA Twigs was on that shit. One new song in particular on Capri songs, Pappy Bones, shows her pride in her Caribbean roots. Truth stay, vibe never realer. She sings over a buoyant dancehall beat. Trips to Jamaica have helped her to connect with her heritage. Her grandparents, who are now in their 90s and live in Manchester, Jamaica, are her muses. They're still together and they've got this cheeky romance, she says. There's a romance to Caribbean culture that people don't always think of initially. You can go to a West Indian club and you can dance with someone for a song and it can be so intimate and amazing. In that moment, you're lovers. It means everything, but it means nothing. Twigs moved to South London, age 17, to pursue a career as a dancer. She attended the Brit School and then transferred to Croydon College to study fine arts. 
A gig as a cabaret dancer in an underground circus gave her confidence. She went on to dance in music videos for Kylie Minogue, Jessie J and even Peter Andre, though she hated it. Speaking to The Observer in 2014, she said, Do you think I want to be dressed up as a puppet? She also worked selling shots in a bar for a while, but it was getting spotted on a night out by photographer Matthew Stone that changed things. He ended up shooting her for the cover of ID magazine in 2012, and that same year, she started recording music, putting out her first release, EP1, independently. It was her first album, 2014's LP1, that really made a splash. With the opulent video for lead single Two Weeks, directed by Nabil Eldekin, being nominated for Best Visual Effects and Best Cinematography at the 2015 MTV Video Music Awards. She also started dating Patterson around this time, which pushed her into the paparazzi spotlight. The pair were together from 2014 to 2017, and during this period, Twigs experienced horrific racist abuse from Twilight fans. She doesn't like talking about the relationship publicly. Who would want to relive such trauma inflicted by strangers again and again? Before she was famous, Twigs ended up befriending the artist Tracy Emin after a chance encounter on the street. I was 20. I went up to her. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm your biggest fan. I wrote a song about your artwork, my bed. The two swapped email addresses and wrote back and forth for months. She was really kind. It was a really big deal for me. She'd been thinking about Emin a lot during lockdown. I sent her an email and a voice note, says Twigs, who then plays me the audio clip she sent to Emin's Instagram account. It's only a few seconds long, but in it, Twigs, assuming Erin doesn't realise who she is, sincerely unmasks herself as the young singer the artist had been speaking to many moons ago. Emin is yet to respond to the messages. Maybe she doesn't approve, Twigs laughs. She's busy. She's living her own life. I respect that. Does she find it difficult to create genuine relationships and maintain friendships now she's famous? A lot of the friends I have, I've had for a very long time, she says. There's a side of me where I think I'll always be eight and desperate to make friends and meet people. But I also know that I do need to be a little bit careful and take things slowly. I've always been a bit of a loner and an outsider. A handful of people helped to get her through the lockdown period and snippets of phone conversations with friends feature on Capri songs. I just wanted to really highlight those voices because I thought, wow, I've been so lucky to have such wonderful friends. Twigs describes herself as a private person but she's open about the things that matter most. In 2020, she shared her domestic abuse story after filing a lawsuit against LaBeouf. She accused him of threatening, trapping and choking her, as well as knowingly infecting her with an STD. They had met on the set of the film Honey Boy and dated for almost a year. But the relationship turned dark. The experiences she describes going through are harrowing. LaBeouf allegedly banned her from looking other men in the eye, and threatened to crash her car unless she professed her love for him. She says she got away by calling a helpline. Speaking to Louis Theroux on his podcast Grounded in early 2021, Twigs described what happened. I remember going back to where I was staying and calling an abused women's helpline, and the person's reaction to me was so serious. She was like, okay, from what you've said, it feels to me like you're in an unsafe place. Does your abuser know where you are? Who have you told about this? It felt really like somebody is taking this so seriously and wants to get me somewhere safe. And that was a really massive wake-up call. That was the time when I realised I need a lot of help to get out of this. LaBeouf has responded to the claims, saying that many of these allegations are not true, but said that he is committed to doing what I need to do to recover and I will forever be sorry to the people that I may have harmed along the way. Twigs has filed a civil lawsuit against LaBeouf, which will be heard next year. It's really sad, but a lot of abusers use the same tactics, she says. Once you know the language, you can be like, no, I'm not confused by this. This is what's going on. On reflection, it's been very healing for me to think about the situations I've been in and know now that that was love bombing and gaslighting. I've got the words for it. And if I feel confused, I can YouTube it. I can read about it. I can talk to people about it. The best thing about coming forward, she tells me, is helping people to understand the language around abuse. She's spoken out about why victims shouldn't be asked why they don't leave. Since coming forward, she's been able to heal from her relationship and step away from it all. Now, she's supporting those close to her. I've got a friend who came out about being in an abusive relationship with a public figure. At the moment, the abuser is just laying into her online. 
making Instagram accounts, doing the absolute most to destroy what's left of her name, Twig says. I said to her the other day, you need to look up what a smear campaign is. He will do anything right now to make you look bad. He will lie. He will hodgepodge bits of bad evidence. Her relationship with LaBeouf came the year after she was dangerously ill with fibroids. In 2018, she announced that she had six of the non-cancerous tumours removed from her womb via laparoscopic surgery. When I look at myself and pictures from the year before, I look so unwell. I can just see the hormones in my skin. I was puffy and uncomfortable. I remember how much pain I was in. It was weird because I look so much younger now than I did in that period. Black women are at a much higher risk of developing fibroids than women from other backgrounds and are more likely to have larger ones and suffer at a younger age. TV and radio presenter Clara Amvo recently announced she was having the growths removed. If loads of people have it, why hadn't I heard of it? If this is something that's not a big deal, why is it an actual hell living in my body right now? Twig says. She's eager to speak out about it more, but the ordeal has left her feeling exhausted. I've not even been ready to open up because it's an ongoing journey. I'm constantly learning. I changed my diet for ages. I was so strict. Does she have a self-care routine? She looks at me baffled. What? Like moisturising? What do you mean? Perhaps it's presumptuous to assume all celebrities are like Gwyneth Paltrow, spending unlimited hours on their mental and physical well-being. But I can't help but feel sisterly concern. I'm not very good at sleeping. But last night I got about seven hours. And that's quite impressive. Music is a place for Twigs to take refuge and process her triumphs and tragedies, her sexuality and her insecurities. She's had a hellish couple of years, but Caprison signalled a positive shift. Its purpose was to be the soundtrack for a night out in the new world. I just love the getting ready process of going out. I love deciding what you're going to wear. I love having your friends over and having a couple of drinks and everyone making the sink really messy. I love the cab rides. I love not being able to get a cab. I love getting into the club. I love not getting into the club. I love the anticipation of it almost more than I love being there. The mixtape is on a different wavelength from her previous work. Less ethereal and musically abstract, it's upbeat and linear. Darjeeling, which features Georgia Smith and Unknown T, for example, sees Twigs swap the sensual falsetto delivery and eerie melodies that feature on the Mercury-nominated LP1 for a UK drill beat and cadence. This isn't a move towards mainstream pop, though. In fact... Twigs doesn't listen to and doesn't care about what people want her to do. It's a trap, she says. I've written massive pop songs, but no one will ever hear them. If it doesn't feel natural, I can't put it out. I just need to do what I want to do. Still, it's obvious that she's on a new trajectory. She recently signed to Atlantic Records and collaborated with The Weeknd on an R&B pop track about pain and partying called Tears in the Club. But she assures me the change in tone isn't a commercial ploy. She just wants to make songs that she can dance to on stage. Magdalene was so amazing. I really wanted to sing and do something beautiful and deep, she says, referring to her 2019 Heartbreak album, which was acclaimed for its experimentation and honesty. But I couldn't have kept on doing that over and over again. You just back yourself into a corner. I can't sing high and on one note for the rest of my career. It's insane to do that. It makes touring not fun. She does three of her signature breathy soprano hums, and says that there's only so many of them she can do. I can't keep on that wailing about my heart, she says. My fans are going to have to move with me, or not. Either way, it's totally cool. When it comes to her future, her only focus is on finding her confidence and learning more about herself. And being a good daughter, and a good friend, and a good girlfriend, and all those things. For the past two years, she's been dating the 1975's Matty Healy. What she desires from the rest of the world, however, is a little more complicated. It's really difficult to mute the noise and focus on what makes us happy. We're wrapped up in algorithms and this post-truth era and the news and not knowing what's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do or the right thing to say or the wrong thing to say, she says. Someone said to me the other day, sometimes you just want your mum to come and pick you up from swimming, you know? I just want that feeling again. Conscious of her time, we wrap things up and we say our thank yous and goodbyes. Twigs retreats into her phone as her PR ushers me out. While she might not believe her skill, talent or dexterity make her special, there are elements of her character, brutal honesty and a reluctance to shy away from the darkest parts of herself that do. Earlier, she said to me, I think vulnerability is really hot. Am I supposed to lie about how I'm feeling or what happened today? I don't have secrets. 
I'm not ashamed of anything. That was FKA Twigs, I Don't Have Secrets, I'm Not Ashamed of Anything by Kadish Morris, read by Savannah Stain. Finally, in 2020, as lockdowns began, Google searches of manifesting went up 600%, but manifesting, it turned out, was far from just a teen or online phenomenon. As lockdowns eased, real-life courses and retreats started to spring up, offering to teach it and promising in return, well, everything. Here, Stuart McGurk asks, can hopes become reality just through the power of positive thinking? Are you ready, like Boris Johnson, to level up your life? Yes, say the latest New Age gurus and their suggestible audiences. Read by Erin Shanahan. The problem, it turns out, when writing a story about manifesting, the noughties new age trend now making a pandemic-inspired Gen Z comeback, is that everyone you meet will proclaim they've manifested you. It's a feature, I suppose, rather than a bug. When you believe that desires can be made real by concentration alone, as those in the manifesting game do, and when that desire is for a journalist to cover the manifesting company you recently set up, then... Well, who am I to say that they didn't? The practice of manifesting is hardly new. It dates back to both the New Thought movement of the 19th century and, more recently, a resurgence in the noughties thanks to the 2006 self-help book The Secret, which sold 30 million copies, and Oprah Winfrey, who is a fan. Yet the latest surge was down to millennials and Gen Z. In 2020, as lockdowns began... Google searches of manifesting went up 600%. On Instagram, the hashtags hashtag manifest and hashtag manifestation now total 15 million posts. On TikTok, views of manifestation content are currently surging past 9 billion. Teen vloggers suddenly became online celebrities by giving manifestation advice. Cara Delevingne said she was manifesting a baby. Shut up, I'm manifesting, became a meme. But manifesting, it turned out, was far from just a teen or online phenomenon. As lockdowns eased, real-life courses and retreats started to spring up, offering to teach it and promising in return, well, everything. There were courses for manifesting creativity and manifesting happiness. You could manifest your financial freedom and manifest your dream partner. There were events for those having issues with manifesting. Why does the law of attraction not work for me? And events for those who required a manifesting leg up, manifesting with the moon. Eventually, I settled on an event called Manifest 2022, which seemed both unthreatening and all-encompassing. I met its founder, Moon Onyx Star, 38, for coffee in Mayfair, central London, around the corner from where she lived. Star wore close-cropped, bleached hair and spoke with the unblinking sincerity of someone who always carries crystals that promote success. Before the pandemic, Star worked for a jewellery brand but was furloughed in March 2020. Like so many others, she felt displaced, lost and confused. Deep-rooted issues she'd been ignoring came to the surface. At one point, she says, she was on the verge of a breakdown. She threw herself into self-help books and podcasts, and it wasn't long before she started reading about manifesting. The concept, roughly, is this. Manifesting takes the idea of a positive mental attitude and runs with it. So, while negative thoughts create limiting beliefs and in turn prevent positive things from happening, positive thoughts, when focused on specific goals and outcomes, can make those things happen. You are co-creating with the universe, explains Star, who says she avoids reading the news in order to minimise limiting vibes. One key caveat, you can only manifest in line with your higher purpose. Essentially, the universe can say no, which is often the explanation when things don't happen. Star set up her wellness retreat company, Over the Moon Retreats, last spring, and soon discovered events that focus solely on manifesting 
sold out almost instantly. I totally manifested the retreat, she says, of the Hammersmith venue she settled upon. The facilitators were manifested. You were manifested. I start to laugh. No, Star says. I'm not joking. A few days later, on a crisp Saturday, I found myself origamied on a yoga mat in Hammersmith, surrounded by 20 or so other Manifest 2022 attendees. These weren't the Gen Zers making manifesting go viral on TikTok. Rather, they were mostly millennials, and nearly all women. Star welcomed us all to the day, saying, Whatever you wish to manifest, be it love, money, success, prosperity, spiritual development, it's coming your way. It's your time. You're ready to level up your life. We were invited to each tell the rest of the group why we were there and what we wanted to manifest. Some spoke for 15 minutes or so, detailing life stories defined by trauma. Others barely spoke a sentence. I want to manifest being more confident, said one simply. They talked of abortions, abusive childhoods, addictions, depression, panic attacks, cancer. But what came up again and again was the pandemic. Many felt stuck in one way or another. People had moved country, changed jobs, had quarter-life crises. Many of those in attendance, it turned out, had split up with partners since the pandemic began. Nearly everyone wanted to manifest either self-love or abundance. A catch-all manifesting term that can mean more of anything, but often money. Nearly everyone felt lost. It's hardly the first time people have sought answers in faith following trauma. After the First World War, for instance, there was a sharp rise in spiritualism. After so much death, people found comfort in the thought that death itself wasn't the end. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a noted proponent. Mediums became such a menace that the authorities were forced to use antiquated witchcraft and vagrancy acts in order to target them. Recent studies have suggested positive thinking can in fact lead to improved mental and physical health. Naturally, commercialization followed. Now, Silicon Valley tapped into millennial ennui, or depending on your amount of cynicism, self-obsession, by taking astrology into the app age. Subscriptions services such as Sanctuary boomed by billing themselves as an Uber for astrological readings and offering regular personal consultations. Big Zodiac is said to currently be worth upwards of $2 billion. All promise a future far brighter than the present, but it's only manifesting that also requires you to put on happy face. I think that's something that's really been pushed on us and celebrated throughout history, says Dr Whitney Goodman, a psychotherapist and author of the best-selling book Toxic Positivity, which looks at the dangers inherent in banishing rather than embracing our negative thoughts when I later speak to her on the phone. And I saw a lot of it early on in the pandemic. But while there's value in identifying our goals, the next step, or just using our thoughts to put something out into the world, it can cause people to think there's something wrong with them like they're not doing the right thing. At its heart, manifesting is religion without the altruism. Traditional prayer is all well and good when you're wishing for the well-being of others, but it's slightly frowned upon to get God on the case when you simply want a new partner or a Porsche. Most manifesting sessions I noted end with our palms pressed together in a prayer-like pose though it's the universe we're told to give thanks to. Before lunch, we did an exercise involving imaginary chairs. The idea was to look both at the thing we want to manifest and at ourselves from an outsider's perspective in case we had any limiting beliefs we weren't aware of. Most intriguing, though, was the teacher, who is a part-time manifesting guru and also a doctor. 
I caught up with her over vegan salads. Before the pandemic, she was always working or travelling. When it struck, she was single. And I had nothing but time on my hands. I started to get curious. Who am I really? She found her way to the works of manifesting expert Gabby Bernstein and was sure the techniques were working, she tells me, after she completed a six-day audiobook course and found herself the very next day bumping into the man who would become her boyfriend. And I thought, I'm healed. There he is. I found him. He was my gift from the universe. Are they still together? We're not, no, but we're very good friends. Part of manifestation I was learning essentially involved looking on the extreme bright side of everything. After all, once you believe events are the direct result of your manifestations, then the logic follows that even negative consequences must be the result of them too, and therefore must actually be positive. You give yourself over to fate, but a kindly one of your own making. For the doctor, the boyfriend gave me what I needed to learn next. At her day job, she says, she often combines manifestation advice with traditional medical treatment, even if she admits it's somewhat frowned upon. Just the other day, she had a cancer patient who wasn't responding to the various treatments they had been trying. I said, I know I can be sued afterwards for asking this, as it is a very unorthodox question. You may want to get a different doctor afterwards, but I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and... She discovered the woman's mother had died of the same disease and so uncovered a limiting belief she felt was holding her back. And when she opened her eyes, her energy was completely different. Has the patient responded better to treatment? I hope so, she says. We're going to scan her and see. The business of manifesting is tough to quantify. But it's clearly the growth subsection of a wellness market now said to be worth a staggering $1.5 trillion. On sale at Manifest 2022 were a variety of manifestation crystals, a variety of manifestation crystals set in jewellery, and some plain old manifestation jewellery. I was intrigued by the latter and got talking to Natalie Ben-Mayer, founder of wellness jewellery label Capsule 11. Ben Mayer launched her brand in the pandemic. She started seeing the numbers 1111 everywhere, like every time I'd look at my phone, and realised they had special significance for manifesting. She had the idea for a company selling high-end spiritual jewellery items, which she says she subsequently manifested. Capsule 11's website boasts a range of items that either ward off or attract something, but it's the manifesting 1111 pendant, £120, that remains by far her bestseller. And I swear to God it works, as I got the brand off the ground so quickly, she says. The amount of people I've connected to through this necklace is crazy. She counts the musician Grimes as her most high-profile customer. Yet Ben Mayer was attending in a personal rather than professional capacity. Like many, she had been furloughed. She'd been through every type of therapy. Hypnotherapy, life alignment, Reiki, crystal healing, you name it. But still felt stuck. I'm here to manifest abundance in business, she says. And also love. We ended the day with the main event, a manifestation session led by Roxy Marone, a 23-year-old from West London whose mother is a shaman and who spoke in gently lilting questions. Marone also set up her manifestation company in the pandemic. It began when she started hosting manifestation rituals for friends at her family home in lockdown and she quickly realised it was giving them all something they desperately needed. Perhaps more than any other age group, Gen Z suddenly felt their fate was not their own. Manifesting became a way to take back control. People did need it. They felt hopeless, she says, of the session she hosted, noting that many people started crying. It was amazing how vulnerable they could be. Last May, her company, House of Roxy, started selling do-it-yourself manifestation kits and Marone began hosting professional sessions once lockdown ended. For me, my business is not about making money. 
Everything I do is to benefit someone in some way, she says. I'm not here to sell you shit. I'm here to sell you something that will change your life. I later check on the website. A full moon manifestation kit costs £85, while a manifestation ring, the power of this ring will help you manifest love and self-love, will set you back £2,300. Like most things that go viral, however, Gen Z manifesting has taken on some curious quirks. On YouTube, teen manifestors teach things like the 369 and 777 method. This nearly always involves writing a boy's name down many times a day in order to make him text you. On Instagram, they've taken to crowdsourcing. Remarkably specific posts circulate saying things like, a huge check of $118,811 is about to land in your hand tomorrow. Type yes to affirm, under which hundreds of people write yes, followed by their choice of emojis. I contact a few users to check in. Nothing yet. On TikTok, teens have started sharing particular sounds. They promise that listening to them every day helps manifestation. I used this sound for one week and just got the cat I've been asking for, while others warn skipping the sound can drastically hinder it. I skipped the sound and my dad died. The latter may sound silly, but it's indicative of where a belief in manifesting can easily end up, that everything bad that happens is also your fault. You just didn't manifest your life well enough. It's something Dr. Goodman sees more and more with her patients. I think particularly for people who have been abused, who have lived in poverty, who have dealt with real traumatic hardship, it can feed into and deepen this belief of, like, I am the reason that bad things happen to me, she says. They really believe these things in their life were caused by their beliefs. Marone, meanwhile, says she is forever getting Instagram DMs from Young people asking how they can manifest their goals. It's crazy, like, 13-year-olds DM me asking, like, how do I manifest? How do I use crystals? Doesn't Marone worry that, especially among young people, this can also be unhealthy? On any social media, there's always an unhealthy side, she allows. But this is not an unhealthy thing to promote. As we start our session, we begin with one part of manifesting that doesn't get the headlines, but which I can't help but feel would have been healthy in the pandemic, regardless of your beliefs. Before we began, we were told we needed to raise our vibrations, which sounds complicated, but the reality was sweetly humble. We were asked to think of the small things we were grateful for and to think about those things every day. We closed our eyes. We concentrated. Marone asked us to make sure our feet were touching the floor. She told us she often gives thanks to her breakfast. It honestly makes me so happy. She mentioned that things can't be achieved with manifesting alone. We had to meet the universe halfway. You have to put the work in. She told us to write down three things we wanted to manifest by the end of the year. And she told us to close our eyes again and think about each in as much detail as possible. I don't want any happiness, she said. If you want your dream house, I want to know what the carpet is like. The key thing she said was to focus on the emotion it would bring. How would having that house make us feel? I concentrated. I felt. We breathed in through our noses, out through our mouths. I have to admit, it felt good. It didn't last, but briefly, it felt good. I wondered if Marone ever sets limits. What if a teen wanted to manifest a mansion by the end of the year? Basically, everyone is capable of everything, she said matter-of-factly. But if you don't believe what you're saying, you're blocking it with negative thoughts. It starts with self-worth. What if they wanted to be the first astronaut on Mars? I would say think of a manifestation that is realistic for you to achieve by the end of the year, but not something that you're afraid that you won't achieve. Finally, I ask what some of her own manifestations have been. Setting up her company, she said, for one. 
growing her Instagram followers. And I've manifested an article written about me in Harper's Bazaar, she said. I was more than welcome, she said, to do a solo piece on her if I wanted to. I can almost feel her manifesting it now. That was Making Dreams Come True Inside the New Age World of Manifesting by Stuart McGurk Read by Erin Shanaher That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Erin Shanaher and Savannah Stain and presented by me, Savannah Ayode Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Danielle Stevens and Nicole Jackson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.